Welcome to episode 30 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. I am your host, Mary, and I am joined by my host, Darren Weeks, who is one of the most awesome Civil War nerds I know. And I am half-assing this intro, as I always do. Wow, I never never took us three takes with the intro before. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations. Wow. Life begins at 30, and this is episode 30. Holy crap. But that was um, that was quite a quite the intro, Mary. I, I mean, I'm, I'll be honest. I, it's very, it was very touching. Thank you. It was very touching. It was. I, I it was have very asked quick. it the, like the, I always do. Yeah, the, the the emotions ran high with that intro. That was really, really good. That, was, <laughs> that really, brought, really brought the feels. Anyway. There will come a day when you're not going to let me do the intro. Uh, you're so much better responsibility. This way, like you are at that damn ice cream machine up there at the Kim Card DQ, <laughs> trying to get out of trying to get out of our responsibility. Hey, anyway. when you're management. Well, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no one pushes those fifteen kids around, year old kids more than you. But anyway. So anyway, how are you? How's everything going? A new new podcast. It's able, we're going a little more east. We're talking North Carolina yeah. today. So um yeah. So how you been? How was your week? Good. How about you? Oh, worked out swimmingly. Perfect. Absolutely awesome. Our second podcast where we can drink again as well. It is. It so what are you is. drinking tonight? Oh, I'm drinking from the local Knockabout Brewery here in beautiful Cape Cod, Massachusetts. It's called Campfire, and I'll be drinking it out of my North Civil War Champions mug nice. because that's who wins this battle. And I don't have anything North Carolina related. Well, I guess I kind of do have something North Carolina related. I do have my mug with Sherman's staff on it. So, oh, and I got a couple of Patriots Super Bowl 38 <laughs> champion stuff I could have brought out theoretically, but I, I guess I can just leave that out. Well, I've got O.O. <laughs> Howard on here and Slocum, Jefferson C. Davis, and Uncle Blingy. They're all at Battle of Bentonville, which we're going to be talking about today. But I am drinking from a local brewery as well. I'm drinking Shut In IPA, which is by Square Brew, located here at beautiful Goddard, Ontario. Very nice. Very nice. Nothing better than being shut in as we are, of course, an annual well, anniversary yeah, here but, of, this, of, this, of this pandemic. I know. But also the important thing, too, is to support local businesses, right? So I've been doing that, that by we, supporting we, the local beer economy, apparently, for the last year. We both drink the local beer, and you've been drinking yep. a local beer every single day for the last 365 days. So you're, you're Especially out. since I met you, Weeks. Yeah, well, I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all with that. Anyway, welcome to the club. So anyway, so let's we're going to talk a little bit about Bentonville here a little bit. Just putting the finishing bows on this last one. Put a bow last. We talked last week about a bunch of different things. We had a great live. When this thing drops on Saturday, we'll be less than a week away from our St. Patty's Day trivia contest that we're going to be doing as well as our get together. So that'll be a lot of fun. We have a lot of stuff to catch up on. So anyway, so we're going to talk a little bit today about the Battle of Bensonville, which is really the last leg of Uncle Blingy's March to the Sea. Yep, it is. We're going to talk about so it's part two of our episode about the Carolinas campaign. So there will be a third part in April, which we'll talk about the rest of what happens to Joseph E. Johnston Mm -hmm. and his quote unquote army if you can really call it that, after yeah, the Battle of Bentonville, as well as the surrender and some stuff in between that, too. This series, I guess, if we can call it that, is going to be the first threesome. Uh, okay. <laughs> <you> go silent. <laughs> well, once again, you're embarrassing the children. So Battle of Bentonville, we'll jump right on this one here real quick. So real big picture is the last real full-scale battle of a civil war, which is where the Rebs really tried to mount an offensive. And it was rather only real attempt, really, in this entire march to try to beat Sherman through the Carolinas, really. It, it was, and we'll talk more in the details about how much that effort really, really was. 
while this is going on, Grant is outside of Petersburg. He's got the whole city surrounded. You know, he wants Sherman to come up there and help him beat Lee. He wants him to come on up here and do it. He wants him to jump on a boat, of all things, and come all the way around and get off and, and, and kind of help him. But he, you know, he has another plan. Sherman, you know, they've been very two peas in a pod, Sherman and Grant. But this is the one time he kind of disagrees with Grant. And he says, listen, well, I'm going to stay down here and I'm going to take out the supplies. I'm going to take out the railroad. It's the same thing. This way, I don't got to go up there. I can just kind of deal with it directly. But it's going to be a big battle. I mean, this Bendill is going to be the largest battle ever in North Carolina. But you know something, Mary? North Carolina, in my opinion, gets the shit end of the stick in the Civil War. And I'll tell you, because they had just as many deaths as Virginians did. They did. But you don't know that. And there's an old saying that North Carolina did all the work and Virginia got all the credit, right? When it comes to the Civil War, it's kind of true. They both had over 30,000 deaths as far as the Civil War goes just in their states tied for the highest in the confederacy so they, they put in a lot of effort but you know the virginians got to write the story so that and there's a, still a lot of animosity between virginia and north carolina and you saw that with the monuments especially places like gettysburg right mm-hmm, exactly when that was coming out so but this is interesting though because sherman going back to him when we last saw our old uncle blingy he was down in leaving columbia after really disappointing Smokey the bear by not following his rules <laughs> with the city of Columbia. Poor and Howard has to he, deal with it. And Howard had to deal with it, exactly. But, you know, Grant, like I said, he wants to connect in Petersburg to fight Lee. And Petersburg is really being sustained by the materials that are being delivered from Wilmington, North Carolina, mm-hmm. which are coming through England, basically. But that's really the last open port that the Rebs have yeah. is Wilmington. And they're taking the supplies, they're setting up the Wilmington Weldon Railroad that runs north from Wilmington, and it's their, really their main supply route to Petersburg, right? So Sherman says, listen, how about I just cut the friggin' supplies? I'm here. i got nothing else to do. So they're going to cut the supplies and try to bleed the Rebs out is what they're going to really do. They're going to march through their country just like before, live off the land, and they're going to really hurt the rebel economy and their will. And then that's pretty much what – that's what he really wants to do is this early part of this campaign. So like he's leaving Columbia – and he tells Grant, though, like when Grant wants him to come up by boat, he's like, no, 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 that's going to take too long. I want to keep going. Like, you know, I want to go over by land. And that's why he does this Columbia campaign. So he has with him 60,000 troops. And it's still Howard and Slocum commanding his wing. So my boy, all over Otis Howard, is commanding the right wing. And he's actually the one that is put in charge at Columbia. He's kind of like the adult in the room there, as we said in the last episode about this about the carolinas campaign and slocum is going to be leading the the left wing of these troops the confederates is where it starts to get really very piecemeal i guess you could say and this is the thing with studying the the carolinas campaign that i learned in researching this episode it really hit me again just if you want to look at how broken things were how done clearly the generals were with the civil war and they knew that the cause was lost just look at the Carolinas campaign and what Joseph Johnston has to throw together when he is called back into command on February the 22nd, 1865. It's like, hey, I got a, Mayor, I got a new car, okay? It's a BMW. You go, oh, wow, that's really good. It's a great reputation. Then you come over and you find out it's a 1988 BMW. It's all bonded, <laughs> held together with tape, but it's still a BMW, right? That's what this army is. So they basically have the Army of Tennessee, which just got their ass riddled up at Franklin, right? Yeah. And and you've got the Department of North Carolina. We'll talk about the guys running this in a little bit. And that Department of South Carolina, Georgia, Florida. you got some cavalry too. But what you have is a hodgepodge of army guys who just, they're a shell of themselves. Think about 20, 22,000 guys right in that thing. 
But this isn't the Army of the Tennessee that we knew heading into Franklin. It certainly isn't. And this isn't Braxton Bragg's army we saw at Chattanooga or at Chickamauga. This is a skeleton crew. You know, we'll talk more about that going through. But on paper, it's Johnson's last hope. And he it knew is. he knew they didn't have much of a shot. And we'll talk more about Sherman because he's got his problems in this Carolina campaign, mm-hmm. too, because he's kind of running out of gas a little bit, too. Right. You know, we we'll, we'll, we'll talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that. We'll talk more about it. So Sherman, he's leaving Columbia before he gets up to Bentonville, which is going to be our goal of this podcast. He's going to hit Fayetteville first, right? And, and he's going to basically – this is a town full of arsenals. It's, it, you know, it's a lot um, like the Meridian campaign. It's a town that's got a lot of supplies, a lot of war-making capability. He wants to wreck it because that's what he wants to do because now it's the supplies. There's a quote that somebody said down at Fayetteville. It said, Sherman stayed five days, but his impact lingered for a decade. He went to town. The citizens got roughed up. The military mocked the locals by playing Dixie everywhere they went. And this is the 14th Corps, naturally, the way it always is. But they destroyed the arsenals. They did all kinds of damage. And basically what they did is they just left the city as a complete shell of itself. They just messed the whole thing up, and it really affected them. Over in Wilmington... And we're going to talk about the other side a little bit. We're not going to talk a lot about Wilmington and Fort Fisher. We're, just, we're going to save that for another day. But just to touch on it real quick, the Army's taken Fort Fisher in January of 1865. So this is a little bit before. This is an 11-day siege of Wilmington, which is about 30 miles up the river from Fort Fisher. It finally falls on February 22nd. This is when Braxton Bragg evacuates. He takes Yolos. He takes off. But they burn the cotton bills. They do the traditional burn everything before they leave. What it does is it gives Sherman that potential supply base. For the Navy, because mm-hmm. he can connect now to Wilmington if he wants it. There's a guy named General Alfred Terry who's really in charge, but he's just taken forever. He finally gets replaced by John, our old friend John Schofield, Mary from Franklin, right? Mm-hmm. And he's going to begin to finally leave Wilmington, and he's going to move his way inland. Because what he wants to do is he wants to hook up with some troops from New Bern, and he wants to slowly make his way to a place called Goldsboro to meet up with Sherman. And from there, what they're going to do is either going to go to Raleigh, and they're going to chase Johnston, or if that doesn't work out, then they're going to try to work about getting over to Grant. So, mm-hmm. but that's really, the, in a nutshell, what the plan is. So you got Schofield coming from the east, you got Sherman coming from the south, going east, and they're all going to connect to Goldsboro. And that, and that that's really what the plan is. And what Joseph Johnston wants to do is he wants to make a fight. This is his last chance. He wants to stop Sherman here because he knows this is pretty much it. So he's going to try to delay that Goldsboro meeting. He's going to try to stop them there. In, for the Confederacy. And that's what Lee wants him to do. He wants to keep Sherman away from Virginia. And Sherman, again, has he has 60,000 troops with him. Johnston is only going to have 21,000 with him. That is what he's managed to piece together from basically three different places. It's just a little bit about Johnston. He's actually, he went to West Point with Robert E. Lee graduated the same year in 1829, mm-hmm. their classmates. He had conva- commanded the Confederates at Manassas, and he's actually wounded at the same battle as Oliver Otis Howard is. And then he goes out to the Western Theater again, and he's removed on July. He's there until July 7th, 1864, when Davis is basically like, you're fucking done, dude. What are you grinning about? I just, I just love how you get Howard. It's all this I do. It's just so, well, it's just the so same funny. fucking battle. It, I know, but it just, it's just the <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes I see it coming. Sometimes I don't. This time I didn't see it coming. How could so, you not? They're wounded at the I same don't, time. Because I'm going to get some later. But yeah, okay. So, so <laughs> um, but anyway, so, so then 
February 22nd, 1865, he takes command of the what he, will become the Army of the South, as he calls it. And he actually tells somebody after he finds out about it that he's afraid he's been given command of an army just to be the general that would surrender it. So this is something that, first of all, Johnston does not really want. But secondly, he sees the bigger picture that this war is winding down, it's done, and he probably does not want any more bloodshed. And he's got to gather together troops from all across the South. So the orders that he gets from Lee on February 23rd are to concentrate all available forces and drive back Sherman. So Mm -hmm. it's not to defeat Sherman or destroy him, it's drive him back. Basically, this is like, just see if you can delay him, because I think even at this point, he knows they're done. It's a speed bump. He's trying to put a speed exactly. bump. Exactly. Yeah. Delay the inevitable. You've got these two armies kind of converging, right? So Schofield's coming from the, uh, the Wilmington area. March 7th, he's going to basically be heading up. He's going to bump into Bragg in Kinston in a place called uh, the Battle of Wise Forks, mm-hmm. where this battle's going to be called. And it's gonna be, he's going to be with Jacob Cox. And basically what he's going to ultimately do is he's going to really just go ahead and fight him there. It's not going to be much of a of real that big of a battle, but it's just going to be one of those times they connect. So Kinston ultimately falls on March 14th. Scoville at that point is going to begin to advance on Bentonville from the east. Because again, he wants to meet up with Sherman and Goldsboro, who's coming up from Fayetteville. And really what they want to do in Goldsboro is they want to consolidate. They want to kind of have a meeting and just get together, resupply, consolidate their armies and kind of put the whole band together and then decide what they're going to do. Like we said before about Raleigh with Johnson or going up to Richmond. The Rebs at this point, to your point a few minutes ago, they're a mess. They're beaten. That army of Tennessee we talked about, they're completely messed up in a battle we talked about in a previous podcast that never really should have been even fought. So you wonder how this could have been different if Claiborne was still alive and just states rights, Chris Chess was still alive and a lot of these things have still played itself out. Johnson's trying to stay in contact with Sherman. He knows he can't do much, but he just wants to be there. He just tells Lee I can do nothing more than annoy him. Right. It's like swatting at a fly, I think, is is what it is. Exactly. Yeah, things get annoying. You just want to whack try and all that is, you know. So on the other side, Sherman's pushing through North Carolina. So we're talking about March 10th now. So we're getting close to the, t- of the battle here. So Sherman's pushing towards North Carolina. He's got Judson Kilpatrick's cavalry basically screening on his left. They end up in a place called Monroe's Crossroads, which ironically is kind of near the site of Fort Bragg today, Mary, mm-hmm. the same general area. Kilpatrick's going to bump into Wade, Camp- Wade Hampton's cavalry. Hampton's cavalry is going to basically catch the feds sleeping here. He's going to yeah. get them. He's going to, they're all going to be in camp, and but it's not going to work out too well. They are going to eventually get pushed back. But this is what it is. They're just being aggravating. They, they have, don't have the horses, literally and figuratively, to beat them, right? So they're just going to basically kind of continue to do that. Meanwhile, they're just going to keep marching and marching and marching. The Union eventually is going to be, still be heading towards Goldsboro. They want to still link up with Schofield. You know, this, this is when it kind of heats up a little bit, right? So Slocum, he's marching up towards Raleigh, right? And this is when Kilpatrick, he's doing a little recon. He's going to bump into Hardy. He's going to see the camp. And he's going to basically go back to Slocum and say, hey, um, fucking guys are here, right? Kilpatrick's going to ask for help. They're going to set up Alpheus Williams from the 20th Corps. Eventually, you know, they're going to fight. They're going to get beaten back. But then Jefferson C. Davis is going to get involved in his 14th Corps. They're going to force Hardy to retreat that night. But it's going to be that consistent fight run fight run but it's slowing them down 
It's very similar to what happens in the Atlanta campaign. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's very, very similar. Johnston, you know, he's deciding he's going to, he wants to gather them together. At this point, he's like, let's gather together for one last hurrah. Let's see, see what we can do. They're going to meet up at a place called Smithfield, North Carolina. And what they're going to do is they're going to try, they're going to, they're going to basically try and beat Sherman if they can. They know they really can't, but they're going to try. And if they can, then they'll go for Schofield as they're approaching Goldsboro. But here's the mistake he makes, Mary. And this, you know, this is a thing where they misunderstood the numbers. We mentioned before that Sherman's got 60,000 guys. Yep. He's got a literally an army, right? Johnson only thinks he's got 30, 35,000 guys. He's like, well, I've only got 20 or so thousand. I'm outnumbered, but I don't think it's that bad. And it's a gigantic mistake he makes because he's got this army of the South. It's not in great shape. It's not a huge number, but it's somewhat you know, it's not it's not completely a mess. He's got the old Tennessee guys, the Carolina guys, the Georgia, South Carolina, Florida. And he misreads the numbers. The other thing he does is he screws up the map. He does. Right. So so he's got this those cheap mobile gas station maps that are from nineteen eighty that have all the wrong roads yeah, on them. Same thing that Sherman had at Missionary Ridge. Exactly. Probably a two for one deal. That's probably what happened, <laughs> right? He knows that Sherman's army is divided. He knows he's got OO coming on one side, you know he's got Slocum on the other, right? But he thinks they're a lot further apart than they really are. And so he wants to beat them in detail. He, he thinks maybe I can go after one and then maybe go after the other one before they connect. He's going to decide he's going to focus on Slocum. And so he, he does. So, you know, he's thinking, well, go at him, try to beat him, try to get their supplies because he knows he's got this superhero all over on his Howard cover. He wants <laughs> no part of, 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 of him, right? Because he knows he's going to come and save the day. I've seen the picture with him with the shirt. He's going to save the day. <laughs> What's going to happen is that on March 16th, there's going to be the Battle of Averisboro. Am I saying that right? Easy for you to say. And what happens here is Johnston is going to put in two divisions and create like a delaying action. And there's three Confederate battle lines, but the Union manages to just break them. Kilpatrick comes up against Hardy's Corps here, and he ends up calling for support, and he gets support from the 20th Corps. The Confederates are driven from two lines of their works, but then they're repulsed at the third line, and then Hardy just like is like, fuck this, and retreats for whatever reason. This is where Johnston realizes that they're separated by two lines. Right. But where he has the bad maps. Exactly. And so right off the bat, you know, you, you've got bad numbers, you've got bad intel, you've got bad maps, you've got the whole you got to see where this is going. I don't know if he thought, I still got this, I still got the, the great army of Tennessee. I, maybe I do, but he clearly does. And so, you know, you're approaching, you know, you're getting approaching Bennettville now. And so it's March 19th. Johnson decides, okay, we're, we're going to attack right at dawn. Slocum is going to be marching along the Goldsboro Road just south of Bentonville. He's going to set up his army. So Johnson's going to have Robert Hoke, his division from the Army of Northern Virginia, who we mentioned before would have been at Gettysburg, but he got hurt at Fredericksburg yeah. and ended up being Avery, who got killed on East Cemetery Hill. And then you're going to have Bragg's Division of North Carolina uh, on the Rebel left. You have Alexander Stewart from the Army of Tennessee. He's going to be in that Rebel right. But Hardy's also there, too. They're going to set up that army kind of like a, I don't know what you call it, like one of those things, a sickle? Those things, as I'm with my hands, yeah, you can see. Well, I think like there's it's it's, 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 like, it's, not, a, it's not a salient, yes. right? It, yeah, it's, it's like a circle. It's like a half of a basketball. Like that's a that's how it's set up, like a crescent, exactly, like a crescent, like so the eleventh like core. Yeah, like the eleventh core. But he he sets he sets <laughs> it up like a like a crescent on the Goldsboro Road. Yeah, that's and they're facing west. Their backs towards that Nusi River, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but that's what I'm going to call it. Slocum right on target. 
seven o'clock in the morning on the 19th, he, he's going to come stumbling, bumbling down the road. They're going to be bumped into the rebel cavalry, who the same cavalry that was bothering them on their foraging missions earlier. You know, he's going to basically come on a heavy fire very, very quickly. Now, he's going to have Jefferson Davis's 14th Corps with him. He's going to have Clark's division, guys from like Michigan, Ohio, and Illinois, yeah. and you know those places. They're going to come out of that heavy fire. Now, Slocum's surprised, probably one, that he was on time because it was Slocum. <laughs> but second of all, he's surprised because he thinks the rebel army is still in Raleigh. He yeah. thinks they're not even near there. So this is, this is almost like a little Gettysburg situation. You know what he does, though? They catch three rebel deserters. And this, this is where you get lucky. They catch three deserters. And they say, hey, um, yeah, just so you know, the Slocum, Johnson's full army is right in your front. They're not in Raleigh. Slocum at this point is going to request reinforcements. He's going to say, all right, well, okay. But they're going to get pushed back because they're going to come out of that heavy fire that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So he's going to set up his army in defensive style. Real def- uh, he's going to have a guy named William Carlin on his left, James Morgan, his second division on his right-hand side with Alpheus Williams, his 20th, 20th court in support. So now we're coming around to noontime. When you're in these battles... You don't have time to play defense like Green did at Gettysburg, mm-hmm. right? When you come under assault quickly, you have no time to build breastworks. So they're kind of exposed. They are recklessly exposed, as they say, Mary. Meanwhile, the Rebs are getting more and more reinforcements coming themselves. So now you've got guys like Lafayette McClaws coming from Hardy's division along with Telefiero's division. So the numbers are starting to add up. Now, again, the Rebs are very under the gun with numbers. But at this moment, it's pretty – it's not, uh, yeah. right? You, You've got Slocum's. You're basically Slocum up, up against this growing army. The Army of Tennessee is, is going to be there. They're going to push ahead pretty quickly. Caroline Mitch almost gets caught. This is that part of the battle, really. We have that real that battle at the bullpen, which is really yeah. brutal. You know, every one of these battles, you've got the Hornet's Nest that Shiloh, and you've got the Mule Shoe at Spotsylvania. This is in that vein. So this is a hand-to-hand type combat. The Fed line is a complete disarray. It's going to break. But this is some of the most vicious fighting of any of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. That line defended by James Morgan, guys of the 14th Michigan, uh, 60th Illinois. They're going to be basically fighting guys from the 54th Virginia, and the 40th North Carolina, 26th Tennessee. They're, they're going to be basically getting at it. And there was a really good quote by, by one of the soldiers Confederate. He said, I look back, the Federals had risen up behind the bullpen as thick as black burbs on a horse lot <laughs> fence, a guy named Private Hathaway of the 54th Virginia. So then there was a Union soldier who said the onward sweep of the rebel lines was like the waves of an ocean, resistless. Right here, it's, it's probably one of the ugliest parts of this battle mm-hmm. that, again, Slocum didn't expect he didn't see coming because no. he didn't know where they were. Yeah, exactly. He didn't. And like, it's like sometimes like some of the stuff that I read about this battle said like the first and second day are basically just squirmishing because this battle is going to go until it's 19th, 20th and 21st. But this is, you know, it's clearly more than skirmishing at times. It continues until midnight, which is pretty late. And that's finally when the Confederates are just, okay, we're done. You know, like DHL doesn't come in and attack until around three, three o'clock in the afternoon, which this time of the year, you know, you don't have that much daylight left. So he's going to attack. And then the fighting continues until almost midnight. It, it does. You know, guys at Telefair and Bates, I mentioned from the Tennessee, you know, they're attacking the federal line at the, at the Harper House right mm-hmm. there. Um, they're pushing them back. The feds are, are able to repulse the rebel attack, though. And it gets, to your point, it gets late, late, late. But again, on both sides, uh, Lieutenant Heath, 34th Illinois, he says, we saw nothing in four years of army life to compare with that of the 19th of March in Bensonville. So it's pretty brutal. 
late in the 19th, right before bedtime, Sherman sends a message for Howard and says, um, you better get up here. We need, you know, you yeah. need to come down from um, Krypton and save the day here. Yeah. And that that's when Howard, he does come down and he actually writes that Johnston in this battle, like on the three days of Bentonville, that he does something that was similar to Fair Oaks, which would be probably ingrained in Howard's mind because that's mm-hmm. where Howard lost his arm. He said that he struck a portion of the Union army temporarily isolated and he hoped to crush it before our troops could be brought back. So Johnson is trying to deploy the same types of strategies that he does here. But Howard does get word that he needs to move up. And so that's where he starts making his way on March 20th. And he says that the terrain is not very good at this battlefield. Like he said in his memoirs, there's so much more open woodland than open ground in the vicinity of Bentonville and so much marshy or spongy soil that quick maneuvering was impossible. So he arrives, but it's not until late afternoon to reinforce Slocum on March 20th. The Confederates are now definitely outnumbered. Howard says when he's bringing his troops into position, there's no real battle going on. It's just skirmishing that day. But he talks to Slocum and Slocum says of the day before, we whipped them. I did, they did push him back. You know, Howard, he, he rolls in. I assume him riding on a horse, probably Fabio style with his hair blown in the sunshine. You know, he's going to get there. <laughs> Mid, like mid-afternoon, he's going to set up on Slocum's right. He's going to extend that federal line down to Mill Creek. Johnston, in his position, he's going to set up his army, Mighty Duck style on a flying V. Love That's that how he's movie. Gonna have his, Love you know, that movie. movie. Great movie, you know. Soft hands. And so that's how they're going to set up that army. But by 4 o'clock, most of Howard's guys are in Bentonville. So most yep. of them are there. I think they'd be able to run there faster for being a Howard's guy. But well, maybe case, they didn't get the maybe they didn't get the uh, contract with Mike again. <laughs> the switch, yeah. <laughs> so Johnston, he wants to make his numbers look bigger. And now he knows what's going on. So he has his cavalry on the flanks. He's spreading his guys out. It actually, kind of works. Mm-hmm. So what he he actually confuses Sherman because now Sherman's like, wait a second, how many guys does this freaking guy have? So he's confused now how many numbers that Johnston actually has. We're going to talk about a couple of mistakes here, old Uncle Blingy here. Yeah, on the this 21st, is the, first one, the okay? next day. He has the opportunity to attack and order a general attack, but he doesn't. He decides what he's going to do. He wants to order one of his subordinates, we'll talk about him in a little bit, to basically probe the rebel lines to mm-hmm. see what they got. You know, at this point, the Rebs, you have Hoke's division with Stewart on the right, and then on the flank, you've got some of Hardy's divisions. They're setting up this defensive style. Now, this you can you say what you will about Joseph Johnston, Mary, but the guy learned, right? Mm-hmm. He set up a defensive line and sat there because you know what he wants? He wants Sherman to attack like a Kennesaw. Yeah, exactly. He wanted right? Sherman to do the Kennesaw thing again, and Sherman is exactly. just like, Sherman's like, so, fuck that. He's, he, so he's sitting there going, yep, come at me, bro. Come at me, bro, yeah. right? And, you know, so Sherman's like, okay, but this my spidey sense is going off yeah. here a little bit. So how about how about we don't? So Sherman's also thinking, you know what? It's getting late on the 20th. I bet you he's going to leave in the morning. I bet you he's going to take off. But yeah. I just have a feeling. So he goes to bed. He wakes up on the 21st. And guess what? Johnson's still there. Yeah, He's moved out his so wounded like, oh. men. But that's it. He, he, he's still there. But then the other thing that comes is it's pouring out. It is frigging pouring. Like deluge rain that whole day. And so that's slowing everything down too. So that subordinate we talked about is a guy named Joseph Mowers, okay? Vermonter, Red Sox fan. Yeah. He was part of the first corps, and he's part of this, this, the 17th corps. I mean, the 17th corps in the first division under Francis Blair. He's going to go out and he's going to reconnoiter the area, but it's pouring out. So it takes him forever. He's also the other fighting Joe. He is. He is fighting Joe point 2.0. And so he does go out, Mauer, and he does find a weak point in the rebel line. 
Okay, he does. And so he's like, well, what do I do? I better attack. Even though he's told to reconnoiter, he YOLOs and he goes straight forward. So he's going to attack that rebel left flank. Um, and he's going to keep pushing forward and he's going to get about a mile away from the bridge. That's where he's trying to attack that, the, the goal. He's going to get a mile away. He's got the momentum. And guess what happens? Sherman's like, can you get the fuck back here? Sherman says, stop. He calls off the attack. Yep. He must have broke his heart. I can't. Yeah. You know? And this is like Sherman said, General Mower ever rash broke through the rebel line on the extreme left flank and was pushing straight for Bentonville and the bridge across Mill Creek. I ordered him back to connect with his own corps and lest the enemy should concentrate on him, ordered the whole rebel line to be engaged with strong squirmish fire. He's got guys, there's not, there's like the 4th Tennessee and the 8th Texas Cavalry. That, that's all he's really got. And Sherman will later miss. I mean, he in his books, he literally quotes, I fucked up. That's just literally what it says. Don't even bother yep. checking it. That's what he said. But he, he knows he screwed up because he knows he could have bagged Johnson's entire army probably right there. He probably could have. Then there's that story with William Hardy's kid, which I know you like to tell because you like these gruesome stories. Yeah, so... Um... <laughs> Hardy's son, who's about 16 years old, he's at this battle with his dad. He joins up with a regiment of Texas Cavalry, and he goes into where Mower is, and he ends up getting killed. Howard actually writes about this in his memoirs, because the sad thing about this is uh, Howard had been his tutor when he was at West Point. So when Hardy and Howard were at West Point, Hardy was a commandant or whatever you want to call it at that time. And Howard was associated with him. Hardy obviously had his son living there at West Point and Howard would tutor him in various subjects, probably math. <laughs> Just saying it probably was math. Maybe. I don't know. Of course it was. Howard knew the boy. He was friends with Hardy and he found out from, from Stephen D. Lee that Hardy's son had been killed in this battle. It's part, part of the 8th Texas Cavalry. Yeah. You know, 16 years was... old, which probably for... Like Hardy at this point, I think, is done with the war and he's kind of, I wouldn't want to say half-assing it, but just kind of like, we don't need to fight any more than we need to. And he does very reluctantly say to his son, okay, you can go with them because he probably thinks like, oh, this is not really going to be a big fight. I think Franklin was what started to make Hardy question what was going on, but this was probably what was like, okay, we're done with this. My son is, my 16-year-old boy has been killed. I mean, this was over. I mean, this whole thing was over. So, you know, night, night on the 21st finally comes, and Johnston decides he's going to pull out. He's going to go across that Mill Creek. He's going to burn the bridge. And Sherman, it's funny because the night before, Sherman expected him to retreat. But then when Johnston does finally pull out, Sherman's unaware of it. He, it mm -hmm. actually surprises him. And so he didn't pursue him. He just kind of let him go. He, he chose to continue that march to Goldsboro, right? Instead of chasing Johnston, who goes off back towards Raleigh, he's going to keep going and he's going to leave and he's going to go to Goldsboro. He does meet up with Joe at Schofield. He's going to get there on the 23rd of March. And then they kind of sit and they kind of chill. And so they're sitting in Goldsboro and they're resting. They're getting their supplies. Ironically, Mary, you know what they were going for? They were for shoes. How funny is that? <laughs> they really were. <laughs> and so whether, I don't know if there was an ass factory or not, but that's but there, there was shoes, but they were going for shoes. Well, apparently um, Howard was not wearing the Nikes, so they were available. Well, I guess Sherman noticed a lot of the Confederates are barefoot. Mm -hmm. And so he says, we've yep. got to get shoes, you know. And so we did. We'll tell them more of the rest of the stories that go on. But eventually, eventually he does chase Johnson down towards Raleigh. He does catch him and they get to the Bennett House on the 26th of April when he you know, surrenders all that. But the thing about this, though, is it's a weird battle to study because it's got so many guys and so many divisions and so many brigades and so many regiments. 
but there's not a lot of activity. The 19th is the big day. We've talked a lot about and talking about Sherman with the march to the sea, right? Mm-hmm. About how it was a, it was very seamless. It was a very battle. But this is where he kind of trips and falls on his face on this one, right? It was a Union victory by definition. They, they pushed him off the field, but he made two gigantic mistakes. He did. Right. The first one we talked about, obviously, he failed to support Joseph Bauer on that last day for whatever reason. And we've talked about a million reasons why he just was sick of fighting. He thought he just assumed it was over. He just didn't want to. But for whatever reason, he chose not to. Not to the point where he didn't tell him not to fight, but he got him to the point where he had him over a barrel and then stopped him. Yeah. Exactly. He He's within one mile and he could have you know, bagged it. And Sherman actually says in his memoirs, I think I made a mistake there and should rapidly have followed Maurer's lead with the whole of the right, which would have brought on a general battle and it could have resulted otherwise than successfully to us by reason of our vastly superior numbers. But at the moment, for the reasons given, I preferred to make junction with General Terry and Schofield before engaging Johnson's army, the strength which was utterly unknown. So he's saying, I didn't know his numbers. Howard, in his memoirs, says of what the decision that Sherman made, that none of these reasons satisfied me at the time, but events were already ripening, which very soon made me glad that this was the last battle which had not been pushed to the extremity. So recognizing that not more people were killed, and I'm wondering if Howard's writing this after, so he's thinking, my God, like Hardy's boy at 16 was killed in this part of the battle. How many more boys like that might have been lost you know well, we were talking before about how i think everybody after atlanta for the most part knew that this hunt's over right it's over yeah. right especially after franklin and i think at that point it, it gets to a point when when is going to be just unnecessary death at this point yeah sherman for everything you say about sherman he definitely took his foot off the gas he did. and you know he ends up going over you know to meet with with lincoln and to grant and a lot of stuff happens before they finally surrender. The funny part about this is we talked throughout Sherman's march about all the good decisions he made and what bad ones Johnston had made off and on, right? Going back mm-hmm. to Meridian, going back to, you know, just not, not having Georgia defended, giving up South Carolina so quickly. In the biggest final battle ever fought in North Carolina, in the largest real big battle of the Civil War, Sherman wins, but looks bad. Johnston loses, but looks good. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of funny how life is humorous it, sometimes it, with that. It is. And, but I'm wondering, too, if this was really, if you can consider what he did with Maurer and a, a mistake. Because when you look at Hardy's boy at the age of 16 getting killed, if Sherman had said, do it, how many more lives would, would have been lost and would have been you know, you think like the Civil War at this point is it's a month from quote unquote ending, right? Well, Maurer is supposed to do a recon mission too. That yeah, was but he just thing. is like, fuck it, I'm going to attack. But Sherman had said of him him earlier, he's he's the fucking most boldest guy I've got. You yeah. Know, he's very and he bold. Went around, and he went right at Johnson's headquarters too. Oh, he right did. Right Mill Creek there. Went right, right at it. Yeah. He had guys like 25th Indiana and the 32nd Wisconsin, 39th Ohio. He, he had some good guys that he went with. And there was really no defense. There was really nobody there to stop them. The, like we mentioned before, the 4th Tennessee and those 8th Texans. And, and there was really nothing to it. But at the end of the day, what did Johnston do? He did delay Sherman. He, did. he delayed the inevitable. So I guess if you're looking at what your ultimate long goals were, you know, I know you have that quote that you wanted to read about that, he, that Johnston had said, but what was his ultimate goal in North Carolina? He, he kept the cities from being burned, right? Yep. He definitely... But he did delay them. 
he delayed the inevitable. He never had any misconceptions about ever beating Sherman. But you know what? He gave it a shot and did it just enough to slow him down. Exactly. And I mean, at this time, like, I mean, as you said, I've got the quote that I want to read that I found in Howard's memoirs, which was one from Johnston, that Johnston at this point is in a mindset where the war is is all but lost. And he is fighting with an army. It's three different armies basically thrown together. You know, the army of Tennessee, what he gets from them is 4,500 men. That's it. It's just an army in name, basically, you know, compared to what it had been at Franklin, Nashville, Chickamauga, Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. Johnson said that of this part of the campaign, that this was done with the full consciousness of my part, however, that we could have no other object with continuing the war than to obtain fair terms of peace for the Southern cause must have appeared hopeless than to all the intelligent and dispassionate southern men so Mm -hmm. the cause is done i think what he's doing with that too is he is throwing a little bit of shade at jefferson davis and saying you're still trying to keep this going and it's done he was and there was a lot of shade going on i don't know if you know this mary but i have a howard quote for you i know (laughs) so we talked before about how these guys talk about each other howard was somebody who was not who did not come out impressed after this with 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 sherman no he didn't right so he, he says, and I quote, ahem, strategy was his strong point. Take him in battle, and he did not seem to be the equal of Thomas nor Grant. Nope. He'll get you ready. He's a great game day guy. Once the game starts, he's down his leg. That's what Howard is saying. And you know what? He's kind of true. He is. It's, he he's is. right. When I read he that, is. like I've read a similar quote in his memoirs, and it's it's very Probably true. was that quote. That's where I got it from. It was something, uh, yeah, that, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. I read something similar in Howard's memoir. No, it wasn't that. Was read. Like, anyway, you know, he definitely does not see Sherman as being like this guy when he gets into battle where he's like, let's go. He, he Can't sees, you let me have my Howard quote? Can't you just let me have I'm one? letting you have it. <laughs> anyway, but again, Sherman, you know, there's a reason why Johnston sat back in that flying V waiting to get attacked by Kennesaw, yeah. right? And you could say what you about Sherman, one of the best generals the country ever had, but he did have a tendency to, to kind of fumble the ball from time to time. And he did on this. He, did, he won the battle. He did what he was supposed to do. He got to Goldsboro. We met with Schofield. He ultimately caught Johnston. Ben House got him to got him to surrender. He did every single goal. He checked off every single box that he wanted to do on his march to the sea. But when you look at this battle, and he even admitted himself in those memoirs, he could have had Johnston. He could have had him. He could have supported Mowers. He just stopped. It sounds a lot to me like Hooker lost confidence in Joe Hooker to me, doesn't it? A it little does. Bit. That's exactly what now, it sounds like. But again, it's tough to say what he was thinking at the time. I think Johnston would become friends later in life with Sherman mm-hmm. to the point when they were at their funeral together. We talked about the whole story with yeah. the hat and the pneumonia. I wonder, to your point, if Sherman realized if I chase him down, more guys are going to die and it's just not worth it. It's a big waste of time. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll never know, but he did admit that he, he screwed that up. So mm-hmm. who knows exactly what it was. But at that time, uh, for whatever reason, and I've never read why he, he never admitted why he stopped, except that he was a mistake that he did, but he did stop and he did let them go on for a couple more weeks. It didn't ultimately didn't matter because Johnson will end up being caught. He will surrender eventually. The terms will be a little different because Lincoln's going to get assassinated along the way. Yeah. It's going to mess up the plans. But at the end of the day, you know, Sherman's going to get his man. But it seemed like he could have got him earlier. There's no question he could No, have it, absolutely. And you got to wonder why, you know, like, I, I think if you read between the lines in this, and this is something you and I do a lot 
you know, in doing this podcast and just with, you know, the history of the Civil War in general, I think it does go back to the people that Sherman knew in the South, the friends he had and all that. And it wasn't Johnson at this time. He and Johnson were not familiar with each other until they met when they surrendered, when Johnson surrenders to him in April. That's one of the first times the two of them actually sit down and talk together. But he had other friends in the South and he didn't, he was tired of the fighting. But two, you got to wonder when Howard is saying things like, he's not Thomas and he's not Grant. And Howard has witnessed this at Kennesaw. You know, he he knows of what Sherman's done probably at Vicksburg and all that. And I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm not just saying this because OO is my favorite general. I do agree with him. When it came to battles, that was not Sherman's strong suit. It wasn't. He just kind of, something in him just kind of, he balked a little bit more than oh. somebody like Thomas or Grant did. And I think the march to the sea, though, was he truly did shine. And this is where, you know, after Bentonville, they get to Goldsboro. And this is where Sherman writes in his memoirs that the March to the Sea has ended. And he talks about it as this great, it, it's been a great achievement because they march how many hundreds of miles through enemy territory. You know, they take what they need for supplies. The one thing he mentions, though, it's at a limited cost of life. It is. And they don't, they don't even run into their first major battle at the very end. Exactly. They make it all yeah. the way, right? They make it all the way through Georgia, through South Carolina, through almost all the way through North Carolina. They run into Bentonville. And that was a battle that was just really designed. I mean, obviously, you know, Johnson had the idea in a perfect world I'd beat him, and then I'd go beat Schofield, and I'm not sure what he was going to do after that. But they definitely wanted to keep that supply line from the Wilmington um, Railroad in shape to deliver those materials. But he knew, he knew. But again, it was just, it ended up being a successful campaign. There's no question. Probably one of the best. I mean, people study it for years. It's why people know Sherman. It's why he's just not another footnote in American history. He's somebody who achieved his goals, was very was very aggressive, did everything he had to do. Makes me wonder a little bit if there was more defense in Georgia or South Carolina and he had to fight battles more, how history might have been different. Because he really had he really he really had run of the of the yard. He really got to do what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. He didn't get beat at Benville, but he got pushed a little bit and he got caught with his pants down a little bit. And even he started to question himself with how many numbers Johnston had. He got a little, you know, he, he backed, he pulled off at the end. And who knows? At the end of the day, it all worked out for, for the army, for the union. Johnston, like we said, was captured, but, but it ends up being a gigantic battle. And it's one that, again, we, we've said this many, many times, Fincher. It's a battle that people don't study enough. It's, no. it's a big battle. Look, it's not P. Ridge that we talked about recently or Frank, one of these really, really spectacular type ones. But it's one, like we said, it's the biggest one ever fought in North Carolina. But it's one that ultimately did was the final hurrah for Joseph Johnston and the Confederacy in the East. They didn't come close to winning it. But you know what? They put up a fight and they did the best they could with what they had. Because yeah. that army they had was trash. It was. They yeah. Like, I mean, at that point, they kind of like both sides kind of are, I think, in a way, like they're sort of half-assing it because they're like, we don't want any more casualties because we know this is ending. It's clear that from that one quote that I read that Johnston knew they were at an end. And I think Sherman did, too. I think Howard had that attitude as well. I'm sure Slocum did. Hardy definitely did, especially probably after his his child was killed in the battle. The one thing, too, about this is, you know, when you hear March to the Sea, you think Atlanta to Savannah, and then it ends. The Carolinas campaign is separate. After studying this like we have, I see the March to the Sea as being all of this. It goes right to Goldsboro. Yeah, it's it's, it's right to it. Sherman says Goldsboro was the end of the march. He uses Uh the term the march. So it's not just Atlanta to Savannah. 
it's all of this entire campaign. And this is the campaign that is, it breaks the Confederacy. It's the reason why Lee starts, he starts really struggling with supplies because Sherman is ripping up those railways. Morale is, is going down and he's, he's not really waging physical war. It's more of like a mental thing and he's breaking them by taking their supplies and he's making it so they can't make war. Well, there's no sense in making gunpowder and bullets and cannonballs if you can't deliver it. And so when you take out the Wilmington Weldon Railroad and you can't deliver it and that that supply line that runs from Wilmington to Petersburg doesn't exist anymore and then you have no food and then you're surrounded by Grant. I mean, it's at the writings on the wall. It didn't matter. I mean, I'm not sure in real time how much these guys knew what was going on with that. Lee certainly knew because he started taking off heading out towards places like Sailor's Creek and Appomattox because they were chasing chasing supply lines, Mm -hmm. right? They weren't looking to fight. They were looking and trying to escape. They were trying to get supplies. And ultimately, at the end of the day, when they finally surrendered, it was because they ran out of supplies. The first thing they first thing Lee asked for was food for his men when they got when they finally surrendered. And that's when when Grant's capitulated and got them yep. food and, and took care of them because that's how it was. This was the the last days of the Confederate Empire, you know, as they say. So what did Sherman say? Destroy the supplies, destroy their ability to make weaponry, deliver their supplies, deliver their food, and you got them. And that's why he didn't take Augusta, and that's why he didn't take Mobile, and that's why he didn't take these other places we've talked about in these recent podcasts. Because you didn't have to. Why are you going to siege a Vicksburg or an Atlanta when all you had to do was take out the the trains that go around them? And then you got them. And then you got them. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, Sherman doing war, this was clearly how he was talented in war is this type of warfare. He was very talented. He's one of the most talented U.S. generals ever. But when it came to warfare, this was his talent was waging war this way. Could General Thomas have done this type of warfare like Sherman? No. General Thomas was good with the battles. So was Grant. Was... Well, Grant, Grant and Thomas are more go, go, go. Exactly. They, you know, especially Grant. I mean, you see Cold Harbor, you see these places. I mean, nobody like a full frontal like Grant, Mary. Okay. <laughs> you know, but Sherman was more into hitting the flank. He loved that left flank, go around him. You know, if you're looking at sports, maybe he's a better general manager than he is a coach. Exactly. Right. But Sherman's great. Don't get me wrong. Oh, he but it's is. interesting. It's just interesting to show how it works and how guys like even Howard realize that. No, it's interesting you know? to see how Howard looks at Sherman in his memoirs. And we're kind of going off the rails here a little bit. But the part in Howard's memoirs where he talks when he when Howard goes west and he sees Sherman and Grant meeting when Sherman finally gets to Chattanooga and, and Howard writes about their friendship. And it's very positive. But he talks about how you could not have two more opposites being friends including the way they fought and that's when you know howard was like yeah he didn't do the battle thing very well you know like not compare it you know and and howard definitely saw grant as being the talented man in that as well as thomas like he clearly had a lot of respect for all these men he had a lot of respect for sherman too i mean he's going to be sherman's pallbearer at his funeral and he's also going to plan his funeral in 1891 no i think they gained a lot of respect for them Mm -hmm. but you know something is it really a bad thing to find ways to avoid fights and still win absolutely not he who knows what lives were saved because of this march from, and I'm going to say it, Atlanta to Goldsboro. Atlanta? That's not what I heard the march started. Ringgold Gap to Goldsboro. I heard it was Ringgold Gap, someone <laughs> told me. I was at the Dairy Queen in Ken Cardin one time, and I overheard someone talk about it was Ringgold Gap. You know, But it's funny, you know, he wasn't, you know, as to Howard's point, he wasn't the most aggressive attacking guy at the end. 
But you know what, though? He found a way to win. He won by taking away their will. He scared the hell out of the populace. He destroyed their supply centers. He put fear in people like Leonidas Polk, scared the crap out of Joseph Johnston, yeah. was able to win and keep his army for the most part intact. Now, listen, Sherman had a lot of shitty aspects, aspects of his life, especially the racial stuff. He has yeah, good, exactly. Okay, let's, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that he was, you know, whatever. People in the South, and I have these arguments when I travel down there. You can argue all you want about Sherman, but at the end of the day, he saved a lot of Southern lives. He really did. He did. And you could look no further than, than, than Bentonville with Joseph Maurer, right? Mm-hmm. He could have chased them down. He would have had them on the run. It would have been like E.P. Alexander throwing those balls around there at the peach orchard. He could have <laughs> hit them from behind. But he, he ultimately let them go. He caught them. He resupplied with Schofield. And then he basically got to surrender, surrender peacefully, and that was yep, the end of it. Exactly. And they all get, you know what? And they all get to go home anyway. And, and I think that's what Johnson, Johnson, that's all Johnson was searching for at that point was just all we can hope for is I, you know, I'll annoy him, but then we'll just look for the surrender, you know. And that's what they wanted. He was on the same page as Hardy with that as well, and I think all of them were on that. We're we're done. Speaking of done, I think we're done with this one, Mary. We are. So what's up next? So next week we are, so a week from tomorrow night, well actually no, we'll be dropping this on Saturday. So in just a few days, we will be having our St. Patrick's Day uh, round table, which we're going to be doing things a little bit differently this time. So we're going to be having trivia that night Uh and we're going to be having some books to raffle off from the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop, which is located in Chicago and they Uh have a Facebook page. So go over and check that Facebook page out. They do a lot of great events around new Civil War and Abraham Lincoln books that are coming out. And that is thanks to Bjorn, who works there, that we have those uh-huh. books. So we're going to be giving those away with, um, for the winners of our trivia. And if you've never attended our roundtables before, send us an email, info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com, and we will send you the Zoom invite. The episode that will drop a week from today is the Battle of Kernstown. So we will be talking about Stonewall Jackson. And that's a that's a fun one, too. We're going to talk, we're going to talk a lot about old Stonewall. We're going to talk about... Um, Garnet and guys like that. Yeah. And that's an interesting one because it's one that um, the Stonewall folks don't like to talk about, but yeah. we're going to talk about that. And we'll be talking about the Battle of First Kernstown there. Have fun. So uh, when this drops on Saturday, you'll listen to this. Dress in green, bring your libation. We will have fun. And we'll all spend St. Patty's Day together here at the uh, Civil War Breakfast Club World Headquarters. And we will have a lot of fun as we prepare to talk about Kernstown as we head into episode 31, as we head on the towards 40 well, 10 away Ooh, i know but it's not a lot of fun so uh, any final words from you um uh-huh. octavia howard <laughs> well, thank you everybody for listening and for all your support through these 30 episodes it's hard to believe it's we're at 30 because it feels like we just started this yesterday and huge shout out to darren for being the amazing podcast partner to do this with you really Me? are yeah you mm. Okay, well, I guess I'm going to money now. Well, that's all for it, but hey, I appreciate it. Hey, hey, it, take, it takes two. It takes two. You are the best. You're the smartest person I know with this. I've said it many, many times. But we uh, we definitely enjoy this. It's definitely a lot of fun. Yeah. We get to study on things like Kernstown and Bentonville and Pea Ridge and Meridian and stuff like that. And it's a lot of fun. Plus, we get to hang out, and that's a lot of fun. With it, yeah, you know? no, exactly. No, it's a lot of fun to hang out and, you know, just be able to talk about this. And I've learned more in these last 30 episodes than probably the last few years that I've been studying the civil war. Cause it's been kind of, you know, not, not really forcing me, but I'm just, I'm more into di- diving into it than I ever have before. And I really, really appreciate that. 
it's it's been awesome mm -hmm. all right so i guess we can uh, i guess we can put a bow on this one um as we can go off into the great the great beyond again so again thank you everyone for listening to this we really enjoyed 30 podcasts holy crap 30 podcasts as we will go on to more um more things going forward so any final words from you the, the queen of kin cardine see everybody on saturday well hopefully we we'll see you in a few hours on our facebook live at 10 o'clock on saturday absolutely so looking forward to that so again mary always a pleasure once again i say many times the pleasure is all yours and we will uh look forward to talking to you on the other side see you guys later peace out <laughs>